This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Amen. Hey, let's open our Bibles, if you brought one, to Mark 10, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. This is the second week of four sermons in a series we are calling The Unbroken Song. Now, I told you this last week, but I wanted to remind you of where that title comes from. The first place we get the unbroken song, most directly, it's from a Christmas hymn, one written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow during the American Civil War. He wrote a poem and became a hymn called, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. But really, this this idea of the unbroken song, because this is what Longfellow was referring to, goes all the way back to the day that Jesus was born. Angels declared Jesus' birth to shepherds out in the field by appearing as a great multitude of the heavenly host and proclaiming God's glory and saying that peace has come to the earth. And when Longfellow heard the bells ringing on Christmas Day, even in the midst of incredible difficulty and sorrow and despair, he was reminded that the song that the angels sang on the night that Jesus was born was just as true in the fields as it was in the 1860s. And it's the song that we can sing in in 2021. God is glorified and hope is real because Jesus was born and he lives forever. Come on, let, come on. God is glorified and hope is real because Jesus has been born and he now lives forever. And now you say, amen. That is good news, folks. Last week we said that every person needs peace with God and it's given abundantly in Jesus Christ. He came to bring peace. And today we are saying that he came to give his life away. Jesus came to give his life away is the title of this message. He was born to die. So I want to look at a single verse. We'll go more places in the Bible. But I get this idea from one verse, and I want to break it down into three parts. So read along with me silently. Otherwise, it gets unruly because we have different Bible translations. Mark 10, 45. For even... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you join me in a word of prayer asking for God's help? God, may we celebrate the sacrifice of your Son, and in turn, may we be sacrificial worshipers for the fame of your name. Help us to understand and grow in these things now, to be transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So in doing this together this morning, I want to ask and answer three questions that I think bring God ultimate glory and put us low in a posture of worship. And that's the right relationship between us and God. We get low and he is exalted. 
And in explaining that dynamic is what caused Jesus to say what he did in Mark 10, 45. I love the disciples in the Gospels of Jesus because at the same time they come off as so petty and thick, but when you look a little bit deeper, they stand in for all of us. Folks, the truth is we can be awfully petty and really, really thick. And so I just want to look at the conversation that precedes this explanation from Jesus this declaration of why he came. So let's, let's jump back to Mark 10, 35 is where I want to pick this up. I want to show you what they were talking about just before this. Starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, is that not the best way to ask for a favor that you've ever heard? I'm not, I'm not making this up. My daughter did this one time. Just came up and said, Daddy, I want you to say yes to whatever I ask you, okay? Just promise to do whatever I ask you. And I, I did what Jesus did, and I said, well, um, what do you have in mind? You know, I kind of thought, well, this should be good. I don't even remember what it, what it was. I, I wish I could end that story for you a little bit better, but I probably didn't do it just for the record. But Jesus is patient. Jesus is patient. So they said to him, verse 37, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they want positions of honor. Now here's what's happening. This is the setting, the scene. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His disciples think that he's going to overthrow the Roman government. That's what they have pictured in their mind. Here's the problem with that. They think he's going to go overthrow the Roman government, but in each of the last three chapters of Mark 8, 9, and 10... Jesus has said exactly the opposite of that. He has repeatedly told his disciples he's going to Jerusalem to be tortured and killed. So I, I should have clarified when I said in each of the last three chapters, because just before they asked this question, it wasn't like a half a chapter ago or a whole chapter ago, just before. Before they ask this question, Jesus said precisely, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. We picked it up at verse 35. Look at verse 34. And they will mock him, me, says Jesus, and spit on him, me, says Jesus, and flog him and kill him, me, and after three days he will rise. In the very previous verse, they, he just said, I'm going to go and die, and they said, okay, but we want a place of honor when you take over. They're not listening. He clearly says, we're on the way to Jerusalem. I'm going there to die. And the very next minute, James and John come and ask from the Gospel of Matthew, actually tells the same story, but it puts the question on the boy's mom. How embarrassing is that? Mom comes and says, Jesus, I've got special boys here. These other disciples, they're probably nice boys. 
my boys are special. They should sit at your right and your left hand in your kingdom. In verse 38, Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? When Jesus says the cup, it's an Old Testament way of referring to suffering. He's trying to explain to him that he's going to Jerusalem to suffer, but not suffering in some non-specific way, not as like a non-violent resistor. He's going to Jerusalem to suffer so that anyone who confesses his name never has to bear the punishment that they should from God. Jesus is going to give his life for anybody who would repent of his name and take it upon themselves. He came to give his life away. So three questions and three answers about Jesus coming to give his life away. All of these asked and answered with the intention of putting our understanding of who God is and who we are in perspective, resulting in glory due his name, along with our place to bow low in worship. All of that in mind when we ask and answer these three questions. Question number one, when was it decided that Jesus should come and give his life away? When was that decided? Question number two, why does Jesus giving his life away bring God the most glory? John chapter 1 says that when Jesus came, it was to show us God's glory to the fullest. So how does it bring the most glory to God for Jesus to come and give his life away? And third, how will salvation through sacrifice shape you? And this final question, how will salvation through sacrifice shape you? Here's why it's so important, and I formulated it differently than the first two on purpose. Everybody in the world is looking for salvation. Everybody. They may not use that word salvation. They may call it freedom or peace or release or perspective or purpose or legacy. But everybody's looking for their life to have meaning. And the difference between being saved by Jesus, which is the only way to truly be saved, and every other way people are trying to find salvation is that Jesus invites you to be saved by his work. And every single other way tries to convince you that you need to be saved by your own work. That's true of other faiths and worldviews. It's true of thinking something like money or power can save you. It's even true if you think you can achieve purpose and meaning in life by being a wonderfully kind, generous, gracious person. If you're doing it on your own, you won't ever make it. Every other path that promises meaning to you and is primarily dependent on you will eventually fade and fail you. Only the way of Jesus, where he says, be saved, but not through what you do, but through what I've already done. Only that 
leads to life and life abundantly. So how will Jesus' sacrifice to save you shape you? That's the last question. So Mark 10, 45, let me just read this again. I, wanna, I want you to see, I get, these, I get all three of these questions from this one verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The reason I want to ask this first question, when was it decided that Jesus should give his life away? Is because this verse makes it obvious that that was the plan before he was ever born. So if I go to a restaurant that I've been to before, I almost always get the same thing. Part of it is that's just who I am. Uh, if I can help it, I don't like paying $15 for something that I might not like. I kind of go with a sure thing. That's just me. But that, and, and that's how I pick restaurants. I say, I don't, I don't say, let's go to a restaurant and then I'll decide when I, what I want to eat when I get there. That's just not how I roll. I decide what do I want to eat, and then I want to pick a restaurant that has that food and so they hand me the menu when I get there, but that's kind of a pointless, frivolous exercise because I already knew before I got in the car what I was going to order. And I, can, I could just tell the waiter, don't bother with the menu. I, I came for the ribeye. I could do that. But instead, we go through the exercise. When Jesus came to earth, he already knew it was to serve the very people he had created and who had rejected him, who would, would give his life away for them. There's a contrast in the Bible between two children that are meant to be sacrificed. The first one is a boy named Isaac. He's the son of Abraham. Abraham was the patriarch of the Jewish people, and, and now he, we even regard him as the father of the Christian people. Abraham waited a long time for a son that God had promised him. And then in his old age, he and his wife couldn't have children, so in his old age, God gives this couple Isaac. And at one point, God commands Abraham to take Isaac, his beloved son, and sacrifice him as an act of faith. And so Abraham loads Isaac up with wood and a rope, and a knife and other things that they're going to need and says, okay, son, let's walk up this mountain. But it's obvious that Isaac has no idea what's about to happen because he asks, where's the sacrifice going to come from? And Abraham's reply is, well, God will supply the sacrifice. So Isaac is walking at that point to his sacrificial death, carrying the instruments that he's going to be sacrificed with, and he has no idea that he's the sacrifice. Now, in that story, in just the right moment, after Abraham had bound up his son and laid him out and had raised the knife, God tells Abraham to stop, shows him a ram that's been caught in a bush, and the ram becomes the sacrifice. In that story, we see what God would graciously do for Abraham and then when we look at the life of his own son, we see that God could have provided any other kind of sacrifice if he wanted to, but this time he doesn't provide another sacrifice. 
His son is the sacrifice. Jesus was born knowing that he would die. But this time, just at the last minute, God doesn't intervene. He made his son the sacrifice. Psalm 40 has these words. Hebrews 10 picks up on this and shows this. It actually shows us what was happening among the mind and in the heart of the triune God of heaven before the birth of Jesus. So this is, this is Hebrews 10.5 coming from Psalm 40. Just listen. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body has been prepared for me. In birth offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. Do you hear that? When Christ came into the world, there was a conscious understanding that the Lord cannot be finally pleased and he won't, won't be enough to make atonement for sin for, for rams and goats to be sacrificed. Sin so deeply offends God that in order to atone for it, the only possible remedy for sin must be the total opposite of sin. Only perfect righteousness can make atonement for sin. Perfect righteousness must not just exist in the mind of God, it must live on earth, and for sinners, perfect righteousness must die. So in Hebrews 10, 5, it says that a body was prepared for the Son of God, and he inhabits that body to do the will of God. In other words, the plan has been laid, and Jesus says, I will inhabit the body and fully obey by allowing myself to be given over to an undeserved death. It says that all this had been written in the scroll of the book. Scroll of the book are the plans and the purposes of God. See, there's several other places in the Bible. There are things that are written in the book before the foundation of the world and eternity past. And it's always been this way in the mind of God. It was always, so if the question is when was it decided, it was always the plan of God to one day incarnate his son as a man. And then the apex of that plan was for the son of God to give his life as a ransom for many. So the best answer I can give to this question, when was this decided? Always. It had always been decided that way. I know that doesn't make grammatically, grammatical sense, but it's the best I can do. God always had in mind to do this. And praise be to the one who has a limitless knowledge and providence to bring about his will. So the second question, why does Jesus giving his life away bring God the most glory? Why does it ultimately glorify God for his son to die? Now, the clearest place I can answer this question in the Bible is Romans 3. So turn in your Bible, because I want you to see this. Romans 3, I want to read a couple of verses there. 
couple books over, a few books over from Mark, you'll find Romans. Romans 3, starting at verse 25. It says there, whom, this is referring to Jesus. So you can just say, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is like a ransom sacrifice. That's what it says in, in verse uh, 1045 of Mark, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So another way of saying what these verses are getting at is that God brought Jesus into the world to show his righteousness or his holiness or his glory. Righteousness, holiness, glory, very similar. Because in some way, these verses are saying that without this, God's glory wasn't fully seen. Stick with me on this. It opens up a world of exalted godness and lowly posture in worship. So this requires a little bit of a shift of our mindset. We can't think of ourselves first we have to think of God first in order to read these verses correctly. So a question I hear regularly is why did God need to punish anyone for sin? Why can't he just simply forgive it and move on? Why not just simply say, I forgive it? Why the giving of his son for sin? And that's in effect the very question that verse 25 is addressing. It says that God needed to show the full extent of his righteousness because for a long time he had been passing over, in other words, sort of letting slide sins. The problem with that is that the more God passes over sin, and this is true of anybody in authority, anybody teaching, anybody training, the more you pass over disobedience, the less emphasis you, consist, you put on consistently correcting wrong the more it appears you just don't think it's a big deal. So hang with me on that. The more you just say, you know what, I'm going to let that one slide, the more you communicate, it's not really a big deal. So let's do a parenting analogy. Let's just work this out with a parenting analogy. One of the hardest things about being a parent is disciplining your children consistently. It's exhausting. It is really, really hard to discipline your kids consistently. I'm not talking about just not getting angry. I'm talking sometimes it's just hard to discipline your kids, and you really have to fight the temptation to just not. I'm going to level with you. Sometimes I don't discipline my kids in effective, God-honoring, loving ways because I'm tired. <laughs> or I'm distracted, or I just don't want to take the time to do it sometimes. And so when you're a parent, the way to discipline your kids is to figure out what works. So for one of our kids, taking away the screen, this is young kids in general, but for one of our kids especially, taking away the screens is really effective. But here's the thing. If I go there, 
and I'm a terrible parent for admitting this, but if I go there and take away the screen, it's like making more work for me. It just is, because then I have to do, we have to do something else like entertain and give other things. There are plenty of nights where I've just, I've just come home and I've had a day at the church, and Holly has been with them all day, and everybody's at home all the time right now. And so we just need some space, and Holly and I just want to connect. And so after dinner, sometimes it's just really easy to be like, hey, why don't you kids go watch a movie? So your mom and I can have some time. I mean, it's great. It occupies them. We can, you know, talk about the day a little bit, have a few minutes before we're into the bedtime routine. It is easy so it's easily, this is the duality that we're working with. It's easily the most effective way of correcting right behavior to say, hey, because of the way that you reacted to that, because of the way that you handled that, because of the way that you didn't do well there, you're off the screen tonight. But sometimes we just don't do that because it makes more work for us. You know, the downside to that is we're, we're trying to figure out ways to discipline our kids that really just aren't effective, you know, and you're like... You just want to be like, okay, what do we have left? Hey, no reading tonight. You know, well, don't we want our kids to be readers? Isn't it good to read? Yeah, okay. Hey, no doing puzzles. Well, they don't care. They only want to do puzzles if we say they can't watch TV. So that's not a punishment either. When we don't discipline consistently, sometimes we just don't. It does have this way of communicating that what was done isn't that big of a deal. If we don't use the most effective means of discipline, it tells our kids what they did isn't really that wrong. So the reason that God receives the most glory by punishing sin is because if sin goes unpunished, men and women will quickly learn that it's not that big of a deal to offend the God of the universe. That's how dense we are. Remember I said we were thick. Most people are already convinced it's not a big deal to offend the God of the universe. But can you imagine what would happen if God just overlooked sin completely, just said, you know what? It doesn't need any punishment. It's fine. I'm just, I'll just get over it. It brings God the most glory to send his son to be the ransom sacrifice for anybody who calls on his name. Because to anyone who looks at Christ and sees the cross... They know that sin and the offense of God is such a big deal that only death can satisfy the punishment, the proper punishment for sin. And so when we look to Jesus and we see that God's perfect son needed to be sacrificed, that only that can make atonement for sin, we will look and we'll say, Oh, God, forgive me for look at what I've done. It has sent your son to the cross. You are so glorious, and I am so unworthy that you've given me your son. And look at, look at what I've done. Look at what I continue to do over and over again, but you have given me your son. And so it brings God so much glory to say that the only thing sufficient for this is the death of my own son. Why does Jesus giving his life away bring God the most glory? Because God is so holy, he will be satisfied with nothing less. Nothing else will work.
that bring us, God, the most glory. Third question. How will salvation through sacrifice shape you? How will salvation through sacrifice shape you? This is a personal question. I'm not going to let you off the hook by saying, how does it shape a Christian? How does it shape us? How is it going to shape you? If you know Christ, truly know him, really know him, then you have done these things. You have looked at God, and you have seen his holiness. You've looked at yourself. You've acknowledged your lowliness, and you've looked at his son And you know that your only hope for salvation is to cling to him, repent in his name, and say, God, I, God, you are a magnificent and glorious God, and I am a wretched sinner. Thank you that Jesus came to give his life for mine, because without that, I have no hope. So if you're a Christian, really, you've done that. And if you've been saved, and and that's the only way you can be, how will this salvation through the sacrifice of the Son of God for you shape you? Now, listen to the rest of the verses up until Mark 10.45. Let's go back and look at verse 39. And they said to him, was in answering his question, are you able to take the cup? They said, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In the kingdom of God, serving other people is what's great. Jesus also said in another place, for anyone who has come after him, he should take up his cross daily. The cross is the symbol of sacrifice. When you see the cross, see the sacrifice of Jesus, we should take up our cross daily and follow him. The way of Jesus has always been to look for ways to bless and help and honor other people. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was reviled but he forgave his executioners. Even when his closest friends deserted him in his hour of greatest need, he soon after reconciled with them. Pride and jealousy and holding on to grudges and self-centeredness and things like these, these are not the way of greatness. According to this world, We may think, if I offer forgiveness and grace, I might look weak. People will walk all over me if they think I'm soft. You may fear I'll get hurt again. It'll leave me vulnerable. And it might. It might, to walk the way of Jesus, leave you vulnerable. 
to pain and hurt and people taking advantage of you. But it's far better than clinging to hate and letting unforgiveness rot your soul. Jesus told a parable about a wealthy man who's owed a great sum of money, but he called for his debtor and told him, your debt has been forgiven. And in turn, that man, he was owed a small, very small, tiny amount of money by somebody else. And right after his lifetime of debt, couldn't work it off in a lifetime of debt had been forgiven, he goes and he demands payment of this tiny little amount from this other man. And when the man says, I can't pay you, he demands repayment and wants that man punished to the full extent of his abilities. Jesus says, that's so, so wrong, you don't get it. So we have choice. Will you realize that you've been forgiven a great debt, a lifetime, ten lifetimes of debt that you'll never be able to forgive, repay? Or will you refuse to see what God has done and only look at the, the wrong things that God has done for you? The wrong things that, that uh, others have done to you, sorry. Those who have been saved by sacrifice should be marked by humility, should give generously, and we should worship wholeheartedly. If you've been saved by sacrifice, you know that you bring nothing within yourself that might be pleasing to God. But through Christ, when you come, he delights in you because in you he sees the righteousness of Christ, of Jesus. And so God is greatly glorified and to be praised. And we should get low, humble in our posture of worship. Because of all the things that we just said, it has always been the plan of God to send Jesus for you if you have repented of sin and are in Christ. It brings God so much glory because sin is a big deal, the biggest of deals. Salvation through sacrifice produces wholehearted, ardent worship. Would you join me in a word of prayer? We'll sing just a bit more, then we'll be dismissed. God, may we exalt your name. May we walk in the way of Jesus. And may we bring you much glory. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.